Hello and welcome again to another episode of the Indoor Environment Show. I'm Bob Krell, founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors Media, and as always, joined by my co-host, Mr. Don Weeks, who is the president of the Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance, IEQGA. Hi, Don. Hi, Bob. How you doing? Good. You know, it's uh, it's uh, it's Friday. It's Friday, and we're almost it's, through September, so it's it's, uh, it's yeah, moving along quickly. Fast. This year's going yeah. way too fast, um, and it's it's cold here. Uh, and my, you know, not not that has any bearing on anything, but my furnace is out in my house, and we're waiting on parts. Oh boy! <laughs> so at least I'm not up in Canada like you. I mean, I like I can survive. Oh, yeah. I won't freeze to death this weekend. But yeah, I got said, the oh, snowblower we'll all fixed. I've got to fix the snowblower. It was all delivered, ready to go. Anytime the snow starts. <laughs> oh boy! Anyway, this is so, better than a Monday. Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm, but I'm biased. Anyway, uh, great guest today. Great topic. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll let you give the background on uh, our guest of the day. Okay. Hi, Michelle. Uh, Michelle Twilly has over 34 years of environmental, industrial hygiene, cancer, and non-cancer risk assessments, as well as health and safety consulting experience related to the testing and, and inspection of the built environment for a variety of occupational and environmental hazards and indoor air quality concerns. Michelle is currently AIHA staff CIA certified industrial hygienist, and she's uh, in the meantime has been earning a doctorate of public health from the Bloomberg School of Public Health at John Hopkins University. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's great to be here that you're here. We appreciate it. So let's get started with some of these questions. Um, first one, let me pull it up here, relates to your educational background in natural science, public health, environmental health, and risk assessments. Now, with all of that, how did you become interested in industrial hygiene? So I started out as an environmental scientist, and I did a lot of work uh, for the military, a lot of subsurface investigation, um, a lot of hazardous waste site uh, remediation projects. And there was always this requirement for a health and safety plan that was prepared by an industrial hygienist. So as I started learning more and more about it, I, I realized it was an interesting profession and I started getting some training. I had worked with other industrial hygienists. I thought what they did was really very interesting and uh, they were also really good at uh, problem solving. And that just really spoke to me. So I, uh, 10 years after I received my bachelor's of science in natural and environmental science, I went to uh, the Johns Hopkins University and uh, received my master's in health science and environmental health science, industrial hygiene and safety. And uh, I, it's been uh, a wonderful career ever since. And while I was at Johns Hopkins, I was introduced to the risk science and public policy aspect of uh, you know the EPA and then I uh, returned to school to receive my doctorate in public health and environmental health sciences so it's been uh, every 10 years I got a degree and then finally um, when it came time to do another one it was like no I, I'm, I'm I'll just continue on as a life learner <laughs> well you certainly have done that go ahead Bob so, so, so you you wear multiple hats though. So, at, you're all you're the staff uh, CIH for uh, the American Industrial Hygiene Association, uh, mm -hmm. AIHA, uh, but you also uh, you founded uh, Aria Environmental. So, you you do work as a private consultant too, right? So, you're, so you're yeah, I um, I came up through the consulting business. I, I worked for a number of engineering firms, and in 2003, I started Aria Environmental. Uh, it was just because while I was in college, I was uh, doing a lot of side work for people. And at uh, one particular point in time, I had done a multi-week survey of a National Guard facility in Virginia. And the person who I was working for said, well, who do I pay? And I was like, you pay me. Why, why would you pay somebody else? He goes, no, is it going to go to you or to your company? So well, I don't have a company. He said, you should. And uh, in that moment, the you know, Aria was born. Excellent. Um, and and you, we met we met um, at Nashville at AIHCE back in uh, that was 2022, right? Mm -hmm. um, that was the first live one post COVID. And yes. uh, and you had, as you had mentioned in the pre-show, you had just uh, just really come on on that staff position on AIHA. 
So, um, so lo lots happened since then, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. So uh, two years in, and I can say it is a very um, exciting uh, time for AIHA as we are working on initiatives to advance the, the science and the practice of industrial hygiene. A lot of what AIHA has done in the past is all about the skills and the knowledge that industrial hygiene, hygienists need to do their job. And now we're looking at what industrial hygienists do when they are actually in the field or on the shop floor uh, and, and making decisions in real time. Scarily Brian. Sorry. <laughs> you know, it's a live show. Honestly, we've had we've had guests have cats walk across their desk. Oh. We, uh, during COVID, it was especially interesting. Mm -hmm. Certain, certain My, things that happen. Uh, two cats and two dogs. So somebody's bound to make an appearance. <laughs> I'm sure they will, but they'll be they'll be welcome. We, we we're pet, pet friendly on this show. <laughs> Good. Um, so you mentioned uh, staff industrial hygiene, a certified industrial hygienist. That was a new position, wasn't it? When you took it, I, I don't remember having a staff in CIH before. Can can you describe oh, exactly how that how that evolved? Actually, we did have a CIH before. Uh, uh, we had wonderful staff and there was a period of time when that position was vacant. So that's probably okay. what you're thinking about. Uh, in a couple of years, there was a bit of a hiring freeze and a, um, that, that position just hadn't been filled. Uh, there were a couple of um, people that served in the role, not as CIH, but as a staff scientist. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately the board decided that it was time to bring on a certified industrial hygienist again, uh, as not only uh, to work in these scientific initiatives, but also to have a member representative within the organization. Yeah, that's what I was getting at. I mean, basically, I remember there was technical directors and staff scientists, mm -hmm. but never a title specifically CIH. And that was Correct. what I was looking for. And oh, so okay. you're, you're, yes. you're basically the, the first that I'm aware of that has that specific title. Yes. So could you kind of describe what your responsibilities are in that, in that uh, regard? Okay, so um, most of what I do is uh, serve as a liaison with some of our technical initiatives. I, uh, when I first came on, I was working mostly with the Defining the Science Initiative, which is our attempt at our first ever research agenda uh, and to identify those things that are barriers to practice uh, in uh, establishing our best in class practice. I work with the Technical Initiatives Strategic Advisory Group. I also uh, manage almost all of the activities that are occurring in AIHA's Guideline Foundation, and that would be the Standards Advisory Panel, the Emergency Response Planning, uh, Emergency Response Planning Guidelines Working Group. We just changed the name like last week, so that's a new one, and the Standards of Care Initiative. So. Uh, those are big projects. Uh, I also am working on the, uh, and I meant I should have checked myself when I said standards of care. It's now called the Principles of Good Practice Initiative. There has been a name change, and we can talk about that a little bit. Uh, I also work on the, um, the state of the art versus state of the practice survey. And that is a very large survey that uh, we just received results from and are really excited to dig in and uh, distill what those uh, findings are, the key findings from that survey. So there's quite a bit. Um, I also spend some time writing uh, blog posts or um, journal articles. So not, you know, as a... Uh, with a lot of help from the Synergist authors. Uh, thank you uh, to them. Oh, let me see, what else do I do? I go uh, throughout the community and uh, help with speaking engagements. I just got back from Denver last week where I presented on uh, the emergency response planning guidelines uh, to the Rocky Mountain local section. So there's, there's quite a bit of activity in this job. Yeah, I was gonna say you're not too sedentary, um, and, and you still have Aria Environmental too. So Aria is uh, being transitioned over to one of the senior project managers there, and uh, that is very exciting to um, to turn that over and let it go into its future 
uh, under new leadership and ownership. Yeah, with all the responsibilities of AIHA, it would be difficult to also do ARIA, I would think. Mm -hmm. No, um, yeah, I, it's it's impossible. There's, um, I, I, I thoroughly, I mean, it's my baby. I, I, I love that, uh, what we've done and, and all that we've built, but it is something that, uh, it, you know, I, I was thinking a few years ago about my um, exit strategy and how yeah. that would look, especially, you know, I want to retire in, uh, at, at some point. So, uh, you know, I needed to start that process earlier rather than later because it always takes longer. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, go ahead, Bob. I was gonna say my exit strategy for my companies is death, but it, oh. uh, <laughs> I mean, no, I'm not rushing it or anything. No, I, just, no. I think I'm gonna work. To, I'm gonna work till the grave. I think. Yeah. Uh, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, I was gonna I mean, say that I've, I've already worked to the grave because I basically <laughs> have retired. Yeah. And first of all, you've retired. Stop that. <laughs> but, but it is a, it is a lengthy process, as you mentioned, and it, mm -hmm. it can take a long time. So uh, right. I wish you the best with that, and I wish oh, the. You. the people taking over to the best as well. So oh, yeah, they're, they're doing so, great. In fact, I think that was the phone call that came in was uh, the, uh, the, the, the principal who was uh, taking over the, the business. So it happens. <laughs> yeah. Tell them to get to watch the video and uh, you know, get an extra audience. That's okay with us. Yeah. So, so you're here for the four uh, the four new strategic initiatives from AIHA, right? I mean, that's that that that's that's really the the bottom line here. So, we'll sure. bring that right up, right? Great, thank you. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, each of these four initiatives is has a different goal or uh, approach to them. The the most senior of the initiatives, which is chaired by Don Weeks, by the way, is the defining the science initiative. And this is where we're establishing our national research agenda. The first version of the agenda was published uh, the end of last year. And uh, we have three new ideas that have been submitted uh, by our members to uh, add to the second version of the agenda. So this is a joint project between AIHA and ACGIH. So it's really a nice marriage of the two entities. Uh, we are, like I said, in our um, maturation process with this group. I would say we are pretty well um, in a norming phase. And it's the, the content is uh, pretty massive in, if you think about it. We have the research agenda. We have a series of brainstorming sessions that we have hosted most recently on thermal stress and those are published to our member's guide. And then we have a listing of uh, barriers to practice that are in an Excel format. And we encourage our members and our committees to review those barriers and figure out projects that they can undertake to uh, overcome that obstacle or that barrier. The, so, so the research agenda is, is available for free. People can download that? Absolutely. It's on the AIHA website and it is available for free. And we encourage people to review it, uh, share it with students, uh, share it with people that might be funders of research, uh, share it with uh, other research entities. Uh, it, it's just, um, you know, it, it really is our profession's voice of what we need. Right. And we, we will continue to have evolving needs. You mentioned heat stress. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's a major issue from this past summer. Yes. Uh, but there's also things such as wildfires mm -hmm. uh, and pandemics. <laughs> I wanted to mention a few things that have come up. You put an S on pandemic, of... too. That, that's scary. Yeah, that's, that's right. Scary. It's very possible. I mean, my wife is having COVID-19 right now. Uh, she's, uh, she's in bed uh, because she got sick uh, oh, no. this past week. So, I mean, it's still out there. And uh, mm -hmm. so, but, but you know, this initiative is specifically for defining the science that leads to additional research. And maybe, Michelle, you could talk about the the uh, research to practice and practice the research uh, ability that we, we're trying to, uh, to expand. Yes, certainly. So uh, it became apparent that uh, there were two different areas where we had research to practice, which this is how we adapt 
modern research or what's available to uh, incorporate in our practices uh, versus the practice to research, which is where we're defining the needs that we face in our day-to-day -day operations that we could use research to overcome. So uh, the, the research agenda is divided in those two, um, two modes. And it is certainly a, a great way to look at, uh, you know, our, our, need, our needs, our, our niche. Um, well, we, we've all basically have been grown up in a world where we had researchers who were doing uh, very interesting and very important research, but wasn't necessarily something that the practitioners could definitely use. Mm -hmm. uh, so the idea here is to have a loop that, that we provide information from our practices to the researchers who then take that and do the research and then comes back and improves the, uh, the profession by having more information coming from the research. Mm -hmm. uh, that's basically how I think we're planning to use it in, in that regard. So uh, anything else you can tell us about the, 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 the Find the Science initiative at this point? And how would somebody become an, an interested, who is interested in it, how would they become involved? Yeah, it's great. Uh, if you go to the AIHA website under Advancing the Science Initiatives, you can click on the Defining the Science and you will see several radio buttons. And this is where you can download a copy of the research agenda. You can submit a research idea. We are welcome those ideas um, where the, the Defining the Science Advisory Group would then review the ideas and uh, either ask for further clarification, there's gonna be a feedback loop. Uh, we have the uh, ability for you to also review existing research ideas and provide your comment. Uh, so there's, there's certainly an opportunity there. Uh, we, we welcome uh, that feedback. Within AIHA, uh, we have our research and development officers, R&D officers. It's a new officer position within the committee structure. And they are uh, specifically tasked with uh, being a reviewer on ideas that are submitted, but they are also uh, hopefully helping us uh, get that valuable feedback uh, from their point of view, their uh, expertise in their area of practice. And uh, so there's a, there's a lot of ability to communicate in this process. So if you are uh, interested in taking a look at these ideas and providing feedback, you do not have to be an AIHA member to access the content. It is certainly freely available. Uh, and we, if you have any questions, I'm always available to reach out to and contact on the initiative. So I think my name is on uh, and email contact is on each one of these initiatives in the web page. Great. Yeah. Now you mentioned uh, technical committees. Is it also extended to local sections as well? So right now it is living in the technical committee world. We do go out and present uh, updates on the advancing the science uh, uh, topics. And we have uh, QR codes baked in, so a local section or a student local section or anybody seeing the content can just take a, uh, a quick scan of that QR code and uh, reveal all the data for themselves. Okay, thank you. Um, let's make uh, let's talk now about the the new uh, name. We will have to tell me what it what it is. Principles of good practice. Good practice. Okay, strategic initiative. And what is the purpose of this initiative? So the principles of good practice is a, a system where we want to elevate the practice of uh, industrial hygiene or occupational hygiene using the, the tried and true uh, documentation that is available. Uh, we can look at, uh, it's kind of a beyond compliance approach. So we have compliance as a baseline. We have to comply with all the laws and regulations that's, that's just required. Uh, but now what we're looking at is whether or not those laws and regulations are sufficient to adequately protect worker health. So what we've done is asked our volunteer groups and our committees to take a look at their subject matter and think about what the good practice to apply is, 
and then also think about it in terms of best practice. So it's envision it as a roadmap as we work through each of the domains under occupational hygiene, we will come up with uh, an, a checklist that people can go to and say, all right, here's where I'm practicing. Here's where I probably should be for good practice, or here's where I can get to in best practice and just have those resources. So what happens with this process is there are um, references and resources to guidance documents, standards, um, you know, work practices and the like that are already published. Some of them are peer reviewed, some of them are consensus standards, some of them are not, but they are all uh, in the opinion of the people who are developing these guidelines or these principles of good practice, uh, going to get you to a better level of practice. So, go ahead, Bob. Oh, no, no, I just... Just popping in, are you? Okay, good to see you. <laughs> I'm here. I'm it's here a, a crazy lot. day. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. It's a little bit crazy day. But anyway, I mentioned we have no heat here, so it's like yeah. I'm just freezing. Uh, yes. All right. So you mentioned uh, the um, these working groups, and including I think there's six of them, and including one for uh, an indoor environmental quality. And as you know, this program is more oriented towards that than for the overall industrial hygienist. Mm -hmm. So. Will there, will there be uh, publications issued from each of these work groups in the future, specifically on indoor air quality or anything else that's related to that? Under the principles of good practice, yes. So right now we have completed the exposure assessment strategies, uh, PGP. We are working with the noise committee on a, a noise and hearing loss prevention uh, PGP document. We are working with the respiratory protection committee, um, and we have reached out and are starting to work with the Indoor Air Quality Committee. Uh, that is, uh, they're, they're defining terms at this point in, in time. So they are moving forward with their, uh, their work. Uh, we have reached out to the Sampling and Analytical Laboratory Group and uh, I'm trying to think leadership and management. So we hope that in five years, we'll be able to work through all of the technical aspects of the practice. And there'll be publications from each of those groups, which will be available down to download? Yes, absolutely. These are all available to download. Uh, it will be one document with a series of appendices for each of the domains. That's good. Now, I mean, it's great that they're going to have, uh, it sounds like six publications. But as you know, uh, all our publications um, become out of date in a period of time. I'm wondering if there's a, a plan to keep this particular initiative going so that, say, every three years we might uh, update uh, the, these uh, documents. So that's the beauty of this. Uh, it's an evergreen process. And the committees that develop their initial principles of good practice are tasked with the care and maintenance and feeding of them as well. So they will be working on them uh, to update them as new content becomes available or as uh, you know they see fit uh, to keep the material fresh. It's the beauty of living in the digital technology age. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and it, it, makes it makes it a lot easier for people to get, you know, valuable information without necessarily having to uh, spend a lot of money. You know, mm -hmm. one of the, the new initiatives seem to be downloadable on an easy basis. So that's, that's I'm really looking forward to seeing these. So you know when the first one may be coming out? Uh, like I said, the EASC has already completed theirs. It came okay. out uh, earlier this year. So that's that's already to go. We are hoping to bring the noise and hearing loss prevention uh, across the finish line by the end of this, this year. And uh, it looks like the Respiratory Protection Committee is targeting Q1 of 2024. Good, good. All right, so they're moving along pretty well. Anything mm -hmm. else you can tell us about that initiative? Uh, well, we did have a name change. So right. that was something well, tell us that, about that. <laughs> uh, so it was originally, uh, you know, what's in a name? We had difficulty coming up with a name and we just kept calling it the Standards of Care Initiative. And uh, that met with some some concerns over some of our members that, uh, you know, these are not standards. We are not doing a, a, a 
consensus standard, but it's the opinion of our members of certain committees that are uh, saying that these are best practices. So uh, we went through our legal department, uh, our legal counsel did not have any issue with calling it standards of care, but in deference to some of our members who were really concerned about calling it that and any potential for it being misconstrued as a consensus standard. Uh, the the uh, then standard of care advisory group convened and uh, reviewed several alternate names and selected principles of good practice as the appropriate name for this activity. That makes sense too, because I mean, standards of care is, you know, of course, that would be like the buzz term. And that's how people would mm-hmm. always refer to things. But obviously, when you use the word standard in a title, it pretty much implies it's a standard. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> that, that makes sense. Now, you know, we do reference standards in in this document. Um, we do reference, you know, guidelines and and recommendations. So, uh, overall, it's like I said, a roadmap to help a practitioner identify areas where they can improve their existing practice um, and, and protect worker health. Yeah, I think that's good to keep that in mind that that's the purpose of this is not necessarily to set a standard, but to give guidance to people who are starting to either need it uh, because they're just starting in the uh, in the industry or that they, you know, looking back and what they want to do and to improve the, what they're doing. And this would be the type of documents this would be a guidance document rather than a you shall do type of uh, document. Right. Mm-hmm. Correct. Good, good. All right. So the third initiative is the state of the art versus practice. Can you give us a little bit of an overhead of what that's uh, all about? Sure. So we just talked about principles of good practice. So as these are, are developed, we're then going to go out and do a survey uh, of our membership and others, uh, it goes beyond the US, uh, to look at what people are actually doing in their practice. So it's not how, it's not the, what you need to know, which is a big change in what we've traditionally done. It goes to what, what are people actually doing? You know how to do the job, but what do you do in actuality? And so we launched our first state of the art versus state of the practice survey, last uh, summer, we had uh, shared the survey with our English speaking counterparts across the globe. And uh, we had a a very robust response. The uh, survey results are posted to the AIHA website. And we are looking forward to a four page insert in the Synergist magazine uh, coming in January. So it will be a nice outward looking piece of what uh, our, the survey results were. And then we have taken like the top five findings and we want to look at mapping those against, uh, you know, how we can improve. So you'll, you'll start to hear that these things uh, link together. Uh, the, the principles of good practice feeds the state of the art versus state of the practice. The first one being exposure assessment uh, related and that feeds into improving exposure judgments. So it, it's all meshed together uh, uh, very well. And uh, do you, can you share some of the conclusions of the survey at this point? I, I, I sure can. Um, you know, not surprising. Uh, we are finding that uh, people are not uh, dividing their uh, uh, workforce into similar exposed groups uh, prior to their sampling and analysis strategy uh, as much as we would think that they would. Uh, They are not applying statistical tools frequently. Uh, We have powerful tools for small sample sets, um, you know, using the Bayesian decision analysis. And what's interesting is uh, people are still reporting that they need more data, more sampling to adequately uh, uh, use statistical tools. So those are some high level findings. Uh, We really would love to find a a researcher or maybe some students who would like to dig into this data set and uh, mine it for all the areas where we can improve. But just hitting those highlights is going to take years. 
Well, I think so. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's sort of set up as as a uh, well, not opposite. It's certainly not the same thing. When you say this is the, called the state of the art versus the state of practice, um, is there specifically why there there shall we say differences between the state of the art and the state of the practice at this point? Yes, uh, that's what we're you know trying to drive from the principles of good practice project. You have that that mapping of the good practice and the best practice. So we use that mapping to generate the questions for the surveys, and then we just want to see where people fall in their actual practice. So the practice is different than what should be, uh, as you mentioned. They're not using the strategic uh, or the um, various type of uh, mechanisms and tools that are out there. Why do people shy away from using those tools, do you think? Yeah, that's a good question, really. Yeah, it is. It, um, we, we ask that in the survey. So we have a variety of reasons. Uh, don't know the tools exist. Don't know how to use them. Don't have management support. Don't have time. Uh, we're just doing compliance. That's it. Uh, so there were many uh, reasons why not. And that's once we understand the why, we can uh, go in and try to address how to get people to to do that. Do that Was that work. a surprise when when you did the survey? Those you know, coming to that conclusion, getting you know, getting those results that people were saying they really weren't doing statistical analyses. Uh, it it uh, yes and no. Um, I think before the we thought it was worse than it was. I think, uh, you know, we before we were thinking that nobody uses this or very few people use it. And now we're seeing about 25 percent are responding that they use the, the tools. And we'd like to see, you know, that go up much more. Well, all three of us have served in situations where the client is looking for an instant answer answer to these questions. And so you do sampling and they want to know within five minutes what their problem is. Right. Uh, that kind of, you know, pushes it out in terms of how much to, you know, statistical analysis you can actually do if that's the type of pressure you're under right. doing the, the, doing this work for, for clients. So do you anticipate that that's, that type of, of uh, relationship is going to change over a period of time? We certainly hope it does, but I yeah. guess I'm asking your expert opinion on that. It's hard to know for sure. Right. You know, it's... Uh... You, know, you have that aha moment as you're practicing in the profession where you you know intuitively that there's overexposures occurring at a, a facility and uh, you know how do you communicate that to the you know operating personnel or the management of that that facility and I found that using the the tools the especially the the graphics in the Bayesian decision analysis have helped me uh, convince the facility managers that you know while the data indicates that there's not a compliance issue uh, there really is likely to be one and I'll give you an example in my practice with Aria I worked at a uh, a manufacturer that had, uh, they wanted me to come in and do noise dissymmetry. And so I went in and, and talked to them about, you know, what we're going to do and where and who was at concern. And then they revealed to me that they had several threshold shifts occurring in the workforce. And they, they said, we don't understand because our monitoring data historically has been acceptable. And I go out and I, I go to the shop floor and I start to do the monitoring. And the next thing I know, everybody's leaving. And the um, facility manager had sent everybody home early uh, ahead of a holiday and didn't tell anybody, the operations manager, anybody that this was happening. So the results were quite biased because half the equipment wasn't running. So we came back in, repeated the monitoring, and, you know, looking at it, uh, looking at the results, they were just under the, um, the OSHA uh, thresholds for noise. And, and I was like, okay, so you're compliant, but, and I said, this is where I'm going with this. I, you have threshold shifts, you have hearing loss occurring. You, um, your monitoring data, even though it looks like it's compliant, you weren't operation, you weren't fully operational. 
uh, even on the day we were monitoring and, um, you know, the second day we were monitoring, I said, I just don't feel like you have good, good control of your noise sources. And uh, I used the Bayesian to show them that they had a likelihood of an overexposure based on the data that we had. And he's like, okay, now I get it. And, and that's, that's interesting you were able to do that. I mean, I, not everybody would have gotten to that second step. Yeah. Uh, in many cases, the guy would have right. said, that's enough. I've, you know, I have the results I need. I'm going to move on. No. So briefly, I mean, not to get into a great deal of, of technical background, but could you brief, briefly describe for those who may not know what you mean by Bayesian methods and Bayesian analysis? Okay. So uh, Bayesian decision logic is a... Uh, statistical method that you can use with very small data sets. And it's very powerful in that you can assign uh, some some priors, some information that you have uh, about how well controlled the work environment is uh, for that exposure. And so you can give some qualitative input into the analysis of your data. Uh, and then you're using simulations with your, your couple of data points that you might have uh, to come up with the uh, distribution across various percentiles of control. So then you can look at it, it's like, oh, this is really well controlled, very highly likely to be uh, below an occupational exposure limit that you have selected. Or on the other extreme is uh, it's not likely very well controlled at all. And uh, this ties nicely into the AIHA um, kind of steps for what's next. What do you do next? Um, you know, I'd love to give you a demonstration sometime of how this works in real time, but uh, you are welcome to go to the AIHA apps and eTools page and you can link into IHSTAT, um, uh, IHEST or Expo Stats, and um, you know these powerful tools that will take you through that that logic. They're all right. free. They're downloadable. Mm -hmm. And what's best, is, what's great about this is there are nine hours of free web content that you can review um, and get CM points for. And then uh, once you understand that content you can uh, sit for the EDA registry exam and become a um, exposure decision analyst uh, registered. This is all right now free of charge. And it's a great way to learn more about the tools. The content is fabulous. It is uh, getting great reviews by all who've taken it. Uh, we are leaving that content as free for anybody to use uh, up until, we'll, we'll reassess in 2025, but right now it's free content and uh, the EDA registry exam is free. So we highly encourage people to uh, to learn more about it and, and give it a go. Where would someone find that on the site, Michelle? That is in the, uh, let me see, click under public resources. You're putting me on the spot here. I know. Sorry, uh, I shouldn't have done that. That's okay. Know. No, it's okay. Um, yep. Mm, oh, I'm getting all kinds of okay. Actually, go, go over to OHS Professionals. There should be an apps and e-tools page. Uh, you know, scroll down yep, for. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, click on that. There. It's opening. Boy, you know, it's like for high-speed internet here in our studio. It doesn't look really high-speed right now. So, I mean, how, how long has this, uh, this new qualification been in existence, Michelle? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. It's been around for quite some time, though. Um, I, I believe some of our early um, registrants are from like 2017, 2016, oh, Okay, so it's been around about six, seven years now. Mm -hmm. uh, and how many uh, people have taken the exam? So we are about 259 right now. Wow. Okay. So it's quite a considerable number. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I assume most people, because they're taking the course, they're going through the materials. The intent is to, is to basically qualify them. Yes. Uh, yes. Not to disqualify them. So, Correct. You know, it, Correct. It's, yeah. uh, again, it's, there's a practice exam. Uh, the, the content is 
certainly uh, it helps you understand the different tools and different approaches that you can use. Uh, when you take the uh, EDA exam, you are given data sets and you work through whatever app that you want to work with or e-tool you want to work with. And um, then you, you plug in the data and it goes through, um, you know, assessing the data for log normality uh, and how you do that. It goes into uh, looking at maybe you have two different SCGs that are being represented by the data and some, you know, maybe you have to split those apart. Uh, it talks it get, talks you through interpretation uh, once you have the data analysis. So it's, um, again, it's, it's a wealth of information. It's great to learn about it. And then uh, what's nice is, you know, once you have that in your back pocket, you can either adopt it fully, or maybe you'll think about it sometime as, oh, I have this application. This is going to be perfect for it. Again, you can use very, very small data sets, you know, uh, and at N of, of one. And some people even argue an N of zero to, uh, to run through the uh, Bayesian decision analysis. So would this type of analysis be applicable to indoor air quality uh, measurements? Certainly, you can use it anywhere you have a log normally distributed data set. Uh, you can have small sample sizes. You, um, you, know, you, you're, you have to come up with what your threshold value is going to be that you're going to use um, and put that into the tool a priori. The difficulty is just what you just mentioned, which is not everybody's agreeing as to what is the specific TLV that you should be using for indoor air quality at this point. Exactly. And so you have to choose that, and that might be difficult. Right. <laughs> that's how we put it that way. Yes. Like for example, like mold. Yes, know, exactly. It's like, whoa, that's arbitrary Yes. at this point. But it's, it's, it's at least a tool that can start uh, them down the right path and getting some type of statistical analysis of right. whether people were exposed or not. And I think that's important. Uh, the last little item on this one is I, you know, I will hear a lot of talk from a lot of my colleagues that, yes, this is great to get all these statistics, but what you really need is professional judgment. Uh, because if, unless you have that type of experience and knowledge, it doesn't matter what the numbers say, you, you can make a decision. So what's your, what's your thoughts about that? I know that our good friend, John Mulhausen would probably blow a gasket on that particular question, but I, uh, so no. let me... <laughs> It's all fair. It, it's all fair. Because remember, we practice the art and science mm. of occupational hygiene. So I, I say that all the time to people. It's like, you know, you you come to this with your experience and your your toolkit and the your the wealth of information that you have at hand. And, you know, we, we remember the basics. We work through the uh, anticipate, recognize, evaluate, control, confirm paradigm. We take the inputs that we have available to us and we have to synthesize those somehow. So we can go back and use like the quality, um, the qualitative data analysis checklist. Um, now, um, thinking in terms of the SDM 2.0 tool that Susan Arnold and um, uh, Mark Stensel and others have developed and that is now housed at University of Minnesota at their website. Uh, but you can use those tools to make sure you're capturing the data that you need to then develop your sampling strategy and mm -hmm. understand who your similar exposed groups are and your um, how you're going to sample and where and when and what your occupational exposure limit that you're selecting uh, for that, that benchmark uh, happens to be, what your confidence interval that you're looking for um, uh, in your statistical testing. So there's there's quite a bit of um, nuance that goes into what we do that, uh, you know, I, I think um, you brought up John, I think you'd agree that it takes both. It's not just using the statistical tools, but it's having the uh, foresight into the information you need to use those tools effectively. Yeah, and that, that brings up something that you talked about, which is, you know, before you do the sampling, you should have a, a discussion about what is your sampling strategy? What is your sampling mm -hmm. plan? Where do you intend to do the sampling? A whole, um, you, know, you know, basically getting a whole plan together before you go out mm -hmm. and start putting up pumps everywhere. Exactly. Uh, and so that brings me up to the fourth point, which is <laughs> exposure assessment, uh, which um, 
I think our good friend John is very much involved with, expo yes. improving exposure, judgment, accuracy. Can you tell us what is the purpose of that particular initiative? Yeah, so this is a joint initiative, again, between AIHA and ACGIH. Uh, it is a collaborative effort uh, that has multiple project initiatives under it um, to improve exposure judgment accuracy. So uh, when this started, uh, we, AIHA, um, procured the services of a um, market research firm to help us understand the attitudes and perceptions of our colleagues um, on exposure judgment and barriers that they might face in implementing these uh, these methods. And uh, that, that really had a great uh, outcome. We had lots of information that came back both for and against. Uh, the use of these these tools. We have people that are very hard and, and set in compliance only mindset. Um, interestingly, though, we've talked to NIOSH and OSHA as part of this initiative, and they have, uh, you know, been very open and receptive to these tools. Uh, NIOSH, in particular, because they are not accustomed to using small data sets, and they are looking at how they can use these tools in their health hazard evaluation process. Um, John Mulhausen was able to go to Cincinnati and, uh, and give a lecture to the NIOSH uh, uh, personnel there and help them understand how these tools are used and uh, you know to be determined where, where they will go with it. And even OSHA uh, representatives are looking at the tools and considering them as uh, you know, a next step or a better way of um, performing their analysis. So it, there is some recognition there at the federal level. Um, but going back to the project initiatives, we are working with the marketing campaign. This is a big culture shift initiative. Uh, we have, uh, we are finalizing some of the messaging that will come out around the IEJ project. And in uh, the beginning of next year, we will start kind of our um, outreach and our, our campaign, um, if you will, out to membership. Uh, we do have a series of, um, we have a survey occurring right now. Uh, if you haven't participated in the survey and you are a member of AIHA or ACGIH, we strongly encourage you to do so. The survey will be uh, coming from Q&A Associates. Um, they are part of the IEJ uh, consultant team that is working with us, and they are working towards crafting the, uh, the materials that we're going to be using as part of our outreach. Going back and talking about the advisory group, uh, our past chair was Stephen Yan. Our current chair is Kent Candy with uh, ACGIH, and uh, Stephanie Batista will be our, our next chair. Uh, they are leading a, probably, I think, a dozen or more project initiatives that are anything from members capturing their aha moment when they realize that this uh, these tools really made a difference in helping them tell the story uh, that needs to be told and making changes within their, uh, their facilities and their manufacturing plants. We have, um, you know, just so many different uh, things happening there, uh, educational outreach materials, outreach back to students and uh, colleges. Uh, we have um, I'm, I'm going to do it in justice. There's just too many uh, different parts to this, uh, this project. Uh, so we have an advisory group and the advisory group members are tasked with uh, bringing their different uh, initiatives forward. And they are reaching out and tapping other members of the association to help them. So it's, uh, it's kind of like a, a pyramid where we have uh, the the dozen or so initiatives and then the trickle down into committee work and uh, and beyond. So it's, it's really going well. So concentrating on just the um, most recent one, the exposure judgment is accuracy. You mentioned that it's a sort of a cultural sh uh, shift or a paradigm shift from 
what people have been using previously, you know, in terms of uh, these tools and activities, uh, how, how will this paradigm be accomplished in a way that the industrial hygienists in the field will use these tools? Well, that's, uh, that's a good question. Um, so that's why we are trying to get ahead of it with adequate training. I mean, going back to the survey we, we conducted about why people are not using the tools, what are the barriers, um, you know, time, uh, buy-in from management, value, you know, that they see, um, you know, it's getting past those barriers. Uh, but one of the, the, the biggest two barriers actually that were, were presented were they don't know about the tools. So that's really getting to an awareness piece, but they don't know how to use them. So that's why the education and the, um, the training is out there. So like I said, it's all, it's all interconnected. It is, yeah, and, and it, it, it's going to be a new, new era. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the era when we switched from TLVs to PELs. You know, from from having uh, ACGIH come up with uh, the TLVs, which were to be used with judgment, mm -hmm. uh, to the OSHA, you know, permissible exposure limits, where it wasn't, there wasn't any discussion. Either you were above or below. Uh, and so this is a new shift to, the, to for a lot of industrial hygienists for the younger, uh, more you know less less experience and that but just as good uh, industrial hygienists this is going to be a great new tool for them for those of us who are a little bit older I have a feeling we're kind of missed the boat on this one uh, we've already been through one of these so um, there's maybe a little bit more of a paradigm shift or cultural shift because of the generational shift that is taking place. Yeah, uh, it's. Um, you know, I, I really see people across all age groups adopting okay. or adapting to this. I don't see that uh, you're going to have the people that this is how I do my my assessment. This is how I've always done it. Uh, they may not want to uh, think about that they possibly could have done better. Uh, that's something that, uh, I mean, in my 35 years, I, I would hate to go back and look at some of my earlier work and think, oh, what was I sure. What was I thinking? I, I could have used this tool or method and I didn't. And now I, um, I, I didn't advise my client correctly and that I uh, there is potential for overexposure and they, they could control them better. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a shift and it's it's it takes both a internal acceptance of something new. Uh, a new approach, a new process. I mean, these um, these statistical methods are are tried and true. They're um, they're vetted. Uh, they they work. So it's um, you know it, it depends on you know where you're coming from. Is it your culture to uh, constantly improve, or is your culture to just do good enough, just get it done, get it, check the box, move on. And uh, so that's going to take some of a, a bit of a shift. Uh, but again, that inward piece where you're you're going to start challenging your um, your skill set and was I doing the right thing and and did I get the the right result? And some of us don't like to look back at that, um, but it's part of the continuous improvement process. Hindsight can be brutal. Yeah. Um, yeah but, but but that's you know that's the whole evolution and learning process. You, you mm -hmm. have to be able to critically assess what you've done you know just because we've always done something a certain way doesn't mean that's the best way to yeah. do it and that, yeah. that's that's a brutal reality check sometimes it sure is it sure is and we, we go through it in every facet of our life yes that's true but one of the things that i think is difficult is it's not just us making the decision it's our clients it's it's sure. uh, you know all, you know various types of officers within a company mm -hmm. uh, that have no scientific background but definitely want production to be up you know and, yes. and going uh so that type of paradigm shift requires that management buy in that people who are regulators as you said osha and i seem to be buying in into it which is great <laughs> but it takes a lot of effort and it's going to take a long time it's not going to be something that happens overnight that's for that, sure absolutely and this is a 10-year phased in project. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're, we're, we're not expecting miracles overnight. But one of the things, you know, I go back to the art of the practice, and that is where you have those, those communication skills and strategies and your stakeholders uh, needs are balanced in the context of what you're trying to accomplish. But if it's a tool that's going to help you communicate, uh, understand your data and communicate better, then by all means, uh, look into it and figure out how it would work within your 
organization, it might not work for you. And that's, that's the, you know, the reality of it. Right. Uh, because, uh, you know, I'm, I came from this as a consultant. Uh, if I went into certain ones, certain clients of mine and I said, hey, you need to do this, uh, you're missing the boat. They're going to say, we just want you to collect the samples and give us the data. We'll make our own decisions. And that's fine, too. I mean, you, you have to balance the needs of your your client. Um, you know, it's interesting talking to people like John Mulhausen, who comes from a career at 3M, where he had direct responsibility for the shop floor. And uh, you talk to you know people from the military who are very command and control. You're going to use this, you know, check the box. Uh, and then you look at, you know, people like me that floated around in the consulting world. And my role as a consultant could be at a upper level management decision role, uh, policies and procedures and process. Or it could have been as simply a uh, we need noise monitoring. We don't know how to do it. Can you come in and do it for us? And then working with them to make sure that we have provided a uh, what they needed um, in a value-added sort of, of context. Um, so I think that the difficulty is that there's a lot of people who are not necessarily CIHs uh, who are doing industrial hygiene mm -hmm. uh, or calling themselves industrial hygienists. And they're, you know, on that, that peripheral area of mold, we've already mentioned asbestos, lead, things like that, that are out there in the public, you know, and not necessarily in the manufacturing facilities, but out mm -hmm. in the public. And that requires a different type of strategy, I think, and, 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 and communication. It'll be interesting to see the first time, I don't know if you know of this, but if anybody who's actually done some type of uh, statistical analysis of uh, samples taken at the at a clearance for asbestos abatement, you know, I mean, that's that and their samples every day being taken all over the right. country and being utilized in that fashion. And you, right. it'd be interesting to see if they if that's going to bend to that type of uh, uh, paradigm shift. I will give you one example. One of my clients was a, a large defense contractor who um, this was my introduction to the using the statistical tools and the establishment of the 95% confidence interval as our, our benchmark. Um, uh, that was, that's how I learned about it is my client said, by the way, when you do your asbestos uh, final clearance samples, we need to meet the standard. And they gave us a spreadsheet and said, this is how we want everything documented and used. And um, so just passing the um, final clearance level was not good enough. It had to meet that, that statistical threshold. I'm, I'm not going to, put you on the spot, but I would encourage you to tell your client to publish that. Yeah. Because I can tell you this they a lot won't. of people, they won't. That, <laughs> no. That's the problem is we, we know people yeah. probably are doing the right thing, yeah. but we, we unfortunately yeah. we're not getting enough, um, you know, actual proof of it. And right. so it's, it's tough. It's tough going in that regard. So now I'm going to throw you a complete curveball ball. So be prepared. Okay. Uh -oh. what? Hey, IHA connects. What was the thinking on that? Could you give us a little background on how we got to from AIHCE to AIHA Connects? Okay, so AIHA Connect was the uh, uh, the culmination of a lot of rebranding effort, and what you know, AC, uh, AIHCE EXP Alphabet Soup name uh, didn't really convey what the meeting was all about. Got it. Okay. And when, you know, we polled our, our, our membership uh, about, you know, what conference meant to them, what we should call it, it really resonated that it was connection. It was a, an opportunity for people in our profession to, to get together. It was the educational content. It was the networking. It was the PDCs. It was the, you know, expo. It was all about connection. And that really was the better uh, name than the alphabet soup of, of the past. Okay, that's good. I think that has to be conveyed to the members. Very, mm -hmm. I think you've already started doing that, but it, it, even more so, I think, as time goes on, because industrial hygienists, although they're, they're scientists, are also very, very uh, shall we say, 
non-responsive to change. <laughs> I guess they don't they don't embrace it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> you know, it's it, it's interesting. That one I would go back to. I think the the dynamics of the different age groups come mm -hmm. into play. Um, I think the you know some of us seasoned veterans um, are seasoned. resistant to to change, but the um, I, th I think the uh, the the early career and the early, you know, new members, you know, what we were doing wasn't working very well for them. And I think they, they will accept that change and be in delight in it. Um, I mean, it really is a connection between all of us and that's what's No, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. The way you explained it makes perfect sense to me. Uh, and I'm one of the seasoned veterans as they say, um, but well seasoned. Uh, Yes, thank you. <laughs> Turn it over. Put them on the other side now. Um, but basically, the 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 hallway conversations, the after the, the the technical committee meetings, the subcommittee meetings, the the dinners out, the luncheons, all those discussions, all packaged into one, is working well for the members. And I think the AIHA connects or connect. Can, is a, can can basically convey that better than the as you said the alphabet soup that we had before so yeah i mean it's it is certainly you know it, it i think it's better because aihce never rolled off my tongue all that well mm. i mean I, i'll be honest and you know and it, it there is a lot in the name you know mm -hmm. from a marketing standpoint and, and 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 it's just i think you know michelle you know not, not nothing against what aih has done in the past it's just evolution it's just you're moving mm -hmm. forward things change people's right. attitudes change and you have to you have to constantly refresh your brand and to, to keep people attracted right right Make and sense. we we are really trying to attract uh you know new people and uh not just seasoned industrial hygienist, but the uh the the ehs generalist or the people that are in other areas and now are being asked to do some industrial hygiene work and you know what kind of training do they need what resources do they need to move forward uh, and also looking at community i mean one of the things that changed with aiha's uh, mission statement is to add community as an element of our our mission and who we are protecting because it's it's just a natural extension of the public health uh, role that we fill we want all workers to go home safe. Uh, we want uh, them to be safe in their communities. And I think that means that we need more people that are aware of the tools that we offer in the practice of industrial hygiene and uh, how we can keep people safe. Great. Makes well, sense. we are out of time and uh, we really appreciate you being here, Michelle. It's been very enlightening. Uh, and we really appreciate your, your efforts and, and as the CIH uh, on the staff for all of us who are now represented by somebody who's, uh, who's been in the field. So it's, it's yeah. a good, good thing. Thank you very much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank, so, Michelle, thanks for, thanks for joining us. Um, I'm going to flip to a graphic on just AIHA site again because, yeah, it makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if you want to learn more, go to AIHA.org. Okay. Sounds good. And uh, just a, a plug for our next uh, presentation will be on October 20th. Uh, it's going to be Max Sherman and Bill Bonfleck talking about ASHRAE's new standard 241 uh, about uh, controlling bioaerosols. So, Michelle, you're certainly invited to, to come as well as a guest. So, uh, uh -huh. But we're looking forward to uh, a very lively session. If you know those two gentlemen, uh, Bob and I will get a word in edgewise occasionally, but they'll be they'll be mainly talking. So good oh, to see you. That'll be that great. Was, and AIHA does have its uh, IAQ task force that it just right. sat up, uh, just started. And I think the open call might still be uh, accessible to people who are interested. And this is uh, in direct response to how we can communicate better between us and ASHRAE with the new 241 standard. Not to plug in for me, but basically I've been asked to be the chair of that particular committee. So it should be, should retired, be an interesting though. discussion. Yeah, hey, I'm retired. retired. Yeah, completely yeah, retired. That's why I can so, do this. Know, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm never going to pretend to be retired though, Don. No, there you uh, go. It's like, it's like, so, so yeah, so we are out of time. Uh, and oh, other other thing, keep keep your eyes open too. Today when we release this, the recording of this show, uh, obviously many of you watched it live, but we will have the recording up on the uh, online community platform, global.healthyindoors.com. That's where all the shows reside under the Indoor Environment Show tab. Um, anyway, when that's up, we're, we have a bonus episode uh, back at AI, when it was still AIHCE, uh, 
uh, back in Phoenix, uh, 20, the 23 edition, uh, Don and I interviewed uh, the uh, president of uh, AIHA, Dina Siegel, and the CEO, uh, uh, yeah, I'm Larry Sloan. <laughs> I'm stumbling here because I'm going extemporaneous. But the, we're, we actually have about a 30 minute interview with them that will also be packaged with this one. So great. There you go. Uh, just a final final word. This 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 particular uh, hour is sponsored uh, by both uh, Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance and AIHA American Industrial Hygiene Association. Thank you to both both those entities. All right. And, thank and you. Yeah, there we go. So uh, without further ado, we'll see you uh, in 30 days and uh, definitely check out all our back programs and the audio podcast.